Good morning. Good morning. It is wonderful to see so many, I think, smiling faces. It's a little hard to see. Um, welcome to our first combined service, one service here at Church of the Atonement. You all got the time right. Well done. So proud of you. Uh, for the people who didn't get the time right, we'll find out who they are when they come in at the end of service. Um, we are so grateful to be able to meet this way and to have fellowship with one another. So hello to everyone in Sanctuary. Hello to everyone in the chapel. And hello to everyone down in Rankin Hall and everyone tuning in online, streaming the service at home or wherever you are. Thank you for choosing to be here this morning for this Lord's Day and this time of worship together. I want to begin by reading a call to worship from Colossians chapter 1. And I'd like to ask us to stand for this morning's call to worship. I chose this call to worship because it's a wonderful summary of the beauty of Christ and what Jesus has done for us. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the good news of what Jesus, the Son of God, the preeminent one, has done for us. And as we are reminded through the testimony of the Apostle Paul, it is appropriate that we respond in worship. We want to encourage you to feel free to hum along with the music today. And I want to also encourage us to be especially mindful of the lyrics and um, let them be a, a prayerful meditation as we worship together this morning. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness, that the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith.
to have the worship team here this morning leading us uh, in song as we continue in worship on this Lord's Day. We're blessed to have a number of gifted and, and willing people to lead us in uh, prayers of confession. This morning, we're going to have Joe Young lead us. So um, as he comes to the microphone, let us prepare our hearts for this morning's time of prayer. Brothers and sisters, we come now to a time of confession. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we approach you through the person and work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We bring our failures. We have went beyond what you have commanded us not to do. Lord, we have fallen short of what you have commanded. We have denied your glory. We have worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. We have cherished our pride. We have not loved our brothers and sisters. Father, forgive us this day. Father, we need your grace today. Father, teach us to treasure you above all things. You are our life. Triune God, direct us in grace that we may depend upon your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for another day to praise your wondrous name. Thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We offer our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, God promises his complete forgiveness and provides assurance that your and my sins and shortcomings are washed clean. Hear the promise of God's pardon. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen. Thank you so much, Joe. 
Well, this morning, uh, for the children's sermon, I want to begin with a question. Do you all know what yesterday was? Yeah, everyone's shaking their heads. All right, let's hear it. No! No, it was not Halloween. I mean, maybe it was Halloween, but that's not the amazing holiday that I celebrate. I celebrate Reformation Day. You know, Reformation Day is a special day. Um, it was 503 years ago, a man named Martin Luther was trying to correct things that the church was teaching that were wrong. The church was teaching things that were just not in the Bible. And Martin Luther said, enough is enough. We need to fix this. But they wouldn't listen to him. And so on October 31st, the day that we call Halloween, in 1517, so this is 2020, 1517, 503 years ago, he nailed a list of 95 corrections, 95 things to the church doors of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. And so the church kind of keeps tabs on this day. A couple of years ago, it was the 500th anniversary of this, and it was a really important day because that's when the church was starting to wrestle with, well, why are we doing things that aren't in the Bible? And so the reformers were men who tried to steer the church back into being uh, uh, in right standing with the Bible. Now, this happened a long time ago, and I was doing some research, and some people say, you know, we, we celebrate that he nailed these 95 theses on the church door on October 31st, but there's really not a whole lot of evidence about whether that happened or didn't happen. Well, I'm happy to say that here at Church of the Atonement, we have a, a team of investigators, historians, if you will, and uh, we have come across some new evidence that confirms it actually happened, all right? This is some new, never-before-seen photographic documentation of Martin Luther uh, nailing the 95 Theses on the church door. So there you can see. There's Martin Luther. He's got his hat, his robe, and that's the 95 Theses. And um, he took selfies back then, too. So he's very happy with himself. Um, but... As we were reviewing the evidence, we learned that he was not alone when he did this. No, he had help. He had some minions that were helping him. It was amazing to see the little helper working with Martin Luther to correct the errors of the church. And here's a close-up that you can see of a um, little one. Now, for those of you wondering how we stumbled upon this, this was discovered actually a few years ago, uh, this photographic evidence, which... I think the minion has gotten a little older since then. The reason why I bring this up, children, is that um, October 31st, though we celebrate Halloween and people dress up and do fun things, it's also important to remember that in that date so many years ago was a time when people wrestled with what does the Bible really say, how we should be living. And some people did some hard things to try to help the church become uh, better, to help the church come back under the teaching of the Bible. And uh, Martin Luther tried to correct the church as best he could. And when his um, conversations would not go anywhere, he took some drastic measures, and he nailed the corrections to the church doors. And today, what we're going to be doing is looking at a passage in Acts chapter 18, where the church is correcting some error. They're fixing some 
some doctrine that's not exactly right, but they do it in a beautiful and gracious way. The people who are involved in this story handle it with a very beautiful mindset. And so before we get into our scripture passage today, why don't uh, we take some time and pray? Father in heaven, we are so grateful that we can come into this room and gather in this building and be connected through the virtues of media and come together to your word, to be taught, to have our minds renewed, to have your voice speak to us and guide us into mature faith. Father, we pray for the children of this church. We pray that they would um, come to understand the beauty and wisdom that is in your word that would help guide them to grow into the men and women that you want them to be. And Lord, we pray that for ourselves. Uh, no matter how many uh, silvered hairs are on our head, we are always in need of your correction and uh, we're in need of being grown through the Spirit and the Word. So we ask your blessing upon our time in your Word today, Lord. Help us to wrestle with the truths and help us to um, be thankful for the gift of this Word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So after um, two weeks now, we're moving on from Acts 17 to Acts chapter 18. In the past two weeks, we have been looking at Acts 17, and we've been focusing on the subject of evangelism. Primarily, we were looking at two common barriers that we can experience when um, we are um, participating in sharing the good news. Those were the fear of rejection and also where to start a conversation, particularly, particularly with people who are unfamiliar with the gospel message. This week we're going to look at the end of chapter 18. We're going to look at a very short account. It's, it's very brief, um, but it's one that I believe has profound wisdom for us as we live out our calling as the essential church. The subject is reflected in the sermon title for today. The sermon title is An Essential Mindset. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then God has placed a calling on your life. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he's placed a calling on your life to share the good news, to live your life as a witness. But if we are to do that as the church, there's an important mindset that we must have, and it was modeled for us or is modeled for us in the passage uh, that we will be looking at today. In the passage today, we'll see a situation that could have been divisive. It could have been very destructive. It could have had a negative impact on the church's ministry. But we'll see that the church displays a kingdom mindset. The church displays a kingdom mindset. This is the essential mindset that the church or members of the church must have, a kingdom mindset. Now, a kingdom mindset can manifest itself in different ways, but in our passage, we can see probably three characteristics, three ways in which a kingdom mindset is displayed in uh, the church in Acts 18. The three characteristics that we're going to see today are this. A kingdom mindset is displayed in a teachable heart or a teachable spirit. A kingdom mindset is displayed in being teachable. A kingdom mindset is displayed in being gracious with correction. And a kingdom mindset is displayed in a collaborative spirit. So teachable heart, being gracious with correction, and a collaborative spirit. 
You can understand that if we're involved in gospel ministry, it might be important to have this kind of mindset whenever we do ministry together and where there are errors that need corrected. How do we handle those things as the church? Do we handle them in a way that honors the Lord and builds unity, or do we handle them in ways that are not with the mindset of the kingdom? So let's jump into our passage. We're going to begin at verse 23 of Acts chapter 18. Feel free to follow along in your Bibles, or hopefully it'll be on the screen behind me. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Who is he? This is the Apostle Paul. As Paul's traveling, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He's referencing John the Baptist here. And so he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside or took him to their home and explained to him the way of God more accurately or more adequately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully reviewed the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So we see in this short passage, it is a short passage, but it has some profound wisdom for us. We see a mindset displayed amongst the early church that is a kingdom mindset. And the first kind of characteristic or trait, the quality that we see is a teachable heart. And we see that with Apollos. Now, who was Apollos? We're introduced to him here by the writer Luke. He is a Jew from Alexandria. And Apollos could be um, summarized in a couple of words. He is educated. We're told that he's a learned man. He was thorough with the knowledge of the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Something important for us to know about Alexandria, it's a city in North Africa, but it was known for its educated population. And so Apollos is a very educated person, right? He's got a lot of degrees if he was living today. The other thing that we were told is that he is eloquent. So he's educated and he's eloquent. He speaks with great fervor and he taught about Jesus very accurately, right? So he has very accurate ways of speaking. We see in the passage that he speaks boldly in the synagogue and also as he refutes some of the Jewish claims that Jesus is not the Messiah, he speaks very boldly as he engages with them. So he's educated and he's eloquent. Luke is very careful to paint a picture of Apollos' education and ability, but Apollos displays another quality that might be surprising when we consider someone who's educated and eloquent. He's teachable. Apollos is teachable. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Let's remember who Priscilla and Aquila are. For those of us who aren't familiar with the identities of those names. 
In verse um, 1 of chapter 18, we are introduced to them as tent makers. Listen to these words from uh, Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens, and he went to Corinth. There he he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who recently had come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. So they became uh, close with Paul because they shared the same trade. The point is that they were tent makers. They were ordinary people, kind of like fishermen. They were people of the trade, right? They're not nobles. They don't have a nobility. Um, they're, they're craftsmen. So Aquila and Priscilla are kind of ordinary lay people, but they spent time with Paul. Because of that, the second thing that we're told in Acts chapter 18 is that Aquila and Priscilla were the people that Paul left in Ephesus for the work of building up and strengthening the church there. Listen to um, chapter 18, beginning in verse 19. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews in Ephesus. And when they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. And he set sail from Ephesus. But Priscilla and Aquila remained there. So Paul kind of left them in Ephesus to help encourage the church and to get it um, built up. Something else that we can't miss. Priscilla is named first in this account and interaction with um, Apollos. Priscilla was a woman a woman living in a man's world, patriarchal society. It's important not to miss. This is a a consistent theme with Luke as a writer. In his gospel, he emphasizes the prominent place of women in the earthly ministry of Jesus. And now in Acts, he emphasizes the prominent place of women consistently through the early church. We'll see that he often names a number of women of high standing coming to the faith. And here, he names Priscilla and uses Priscilla and her husband as a shining example of how the gifts of the Lord strengthen the church. Now, it would not uh, be a true Reformation Sunday if I didn't quote some uh, early church or a uh, church reformer. So I have a quote from John Calvin. I loved what he said about Priscilla here. Um, I tried to paraphrase it a little bit uh, so that we could understand it more clearly. Listen to what he had to say about Priscilla and Apollos being taught by her. He says, This was no small modesty in Apollos, in that he doth suffer himself to be taught and instructed not only by a handy craftsman, but also by a woman. Also, we see that at that time, women were not so ignorant of the word of God as the papists, he's referring to the Roman Catholic Church, will have them. A little dig at the Roman Catholic Church from the Reformer. The papists didn't want people, especially women, to have knowledge of the Scriptures, apparently, at the time. And so John Calvin calls that out. It is not right. Women need to be equipped to handle the Word of God, too. And so he says, For as much as we see that one of the chief teachers of the church was instructed by a woman in her home with her husband. Kind of a beautiful picture that Calvin paints there. He makes the point very well. Clearly, Priscilla 
has a presence in gospel ministry. She does not have an official title in the church as an elder or an apostle, but through her godly and gracious ministry, she and her husband demonstrate a kingdom mindset, and they help to encourage someone in ministry by teaching him. All this to say that in the world's eyes, Apollos, he was in a different league, right? I mean, he was, if he was living today, he would have been a scholar. He would have been a writer. He would have been a speaker with lots of conference appearances. He would have been someone with a popular podcast and maybe a bunch of followers on social media, right? Apollos was kind of a shiny person. And yet, he was teachable. He went into the home of humble people, ordinary people, upon their invitation and allowed them to teach him with what he did not know. So we see in Apollos a teachable spirit. Now how did they teach him? The second thing that we see, we see this with Priscilla and Aquila, is that they were gracious with their correction. Apollos knew a lot, but he was missing something important. We're told by Luke that he knew only of the baptism of John the Baptist. If we were to continue reading the book of Acts into chapter 19, after the story of Apollos, we would see Paul encounter some other disciples. Disciples who knew only of John's baptism and had never heard of the Holy Spirit. Paul explains to those disciples that he encounters that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. It's apparent at this time, because we're having this interaction with Apollos, who only knew of John's baptism, and then Paul runs into some disciples who only know of John's baptism and never heard of the Holy Spirit, it's apparent that Jesus' earthly ministry had a pretty huge impact. There were disciples who believed in Jesus' teaching, they believed in his identity as the Messiah, but they didn't know about being baptized in his name. So that means that the church in Jerusalem, the apostles who were commissioned with the Great Commission, go and make disciples, baptizing them in my name, they had not yet made it in contact with all the people who were aware of Jesus' ministry and identity. The apostles had not reached them yet. Now, if we think back to John the Baptist's ministry, his ministry was one of preparing people for Jesus. In Luke uh, chapter 3, verse 16, John says this. He says, I baptize you with water, but the one who is more powerful than I will come the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John's ministry was one of preparing people for the spiritual renewal of Jesus' ministry. And now that Jesus has come and has ascended, baptism is not only about repentance and preparation for the Messiah, it's now about God's power and presence coming into the hearts of people through what was accomplished through the Messiah. And so what we see is Apollos knew a great deal about Jesus' life and teaching. He knew the content of the gospel, but he had not yet grasped its significance and its application. He did not understand now that baptism was not just about repentance, but it was now a visible sign and seal of an invisible reality, the reality that God was at work, that the promises of putting his spirit into the hearts of his people were now coming to pass. And so this was an important oversight to correct. And Priscilla and Aquila correct him 
with some incredible grace. You know, salvation has been accomplished, and the kingdom of God has come and is growing. And notice how Priscilla and Aquila correct Apollos. They do not interrupt him. They do not gather a mob of people and try to create a ruckus. They don't try to shut him down publicly or rebuke him publicly. Instead, they invite him to their home. ESV says they take him aside. And they teach him in the context of their home. This is quite the opposite from the way that pastors and public figures and church people deal with issues of disagreement and error. When someone is professing something publicly, oftentimes we respond publicly. At least that's what gets published. That's what we hear about in the news. When someone publishes a book, many times people publish responses. When someone sends a tweet, people tweet a scathing retort. But a kingdom mindset understands we must be gracious when we correct so as to not wound and tear down those who seek to serve the Lord. Isn't it interesting? Aquila and Priscilla, they're not trying to tear Apollos down, but instead they seek to build him up so he's better equipped for the ministry that God has called him to. Lastly, we can see in the church that this kingdom mind self, it shows itself in a collaborative spirit. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, we're told the brothers and sisters encouraged him, and they wrote to the disciples in Achaia to welcome him. Now, who was Apollos to them, to to the Ephesians, right? He was a foreigner. He was somebody from Alexandria, right? So there's a cultural difference. There's a cultural separation. Yes, it was all part of the larger Greek empire, now folded into the Roman Empire, but he's not from around here. He certainly isn't a member of our church. Um, also, he was not one of Paul's companions. He didn't come with Priscilla and Aquila. He didn't come from the leadership in Jerusalem or Antioch, right? He's coming from an outside group of people. And he's very educated and eloquent. We get the idea in contrast to Priscilla and Aquila and maybe some others who are there in Ephesus. Culturally, he's just in a different societal uh, level than they are. And what we see is that though he is so different and comes from a a different context and he's not coming from the church in Jerusalem or in Antioch, Priscilla and Aquila see that Apollos is part of the kingdom. He's on the same team. Though he's not one of Paul's people, he's part of the church. He is a witness too. And so when Apollos seeks to continue in ministry, the church supports him. I have seen churches and heard of churches who have not been willing to put support in people because, well, they're not one of our kids. You know, they came here as a college kid, but they're not one of our kids. We need to focus on our kids first. That is a scary mindset to adopt. That is not a kingdom mindset. The church encourages him. They also write to the other church to welcome him, the church in Achaia. And so we see the church in Ephesus displays a collaborative spirit, one that partners with Apollos in gospel ministry. And Luke summarizes that Apollos ends up doing some powerful ministry there in Achaia. So this situation could have been very different, right? It could have been very divisive. It could have been a reason for discord. It could have been uh, a reason for some, some uh, ingrown fighting 
in the church. But instead, it stands in Scripture as a beautiful example of the church's kingdom mindset, of a person who is involved in ministry, and no matter how much education or eloquence he has, he's still teachable. Of people who know that they're nobody to no one, they're just tent makers, but they know that they have an opportunity to equip and to encourage a brother to be strengthened for ministry. And to see a church realize that we're all on the same team and to invest in someone and send them on their way in ministry through a collaborative spirit. This is an important pattern for us as members of the essential church. A mindset that we should adopt that understands the kingdom is bigger than any one person or any one church or denomination. You know, in the church, especially today, it's easy for us to look out on society and to condemn tribalism. If you're not familiar with that term, it's the idea that everyone kind of picks a tribe of which they belong to. And if you're not part of that tribe, if you don't um, line up with those ideals or values, then you tear those people down. So you're picking sides and you're tearing down people who don't agree with you. But the church... People in the church can be chief offenders. In the church, we can often see people seeking to cancel the credibility of others because they disagree on theological minutia or because they represent the steeple of another people. Some of those cultural preferences that we've talked about, it's been interesting to watch people who are more traditional maybe tear down expressions of worship that are more modern or vice versa. Right? Those things happen in the church. The church is made up of sinful people, people in the process of becoming more like Jesus, and it will not always get it wrong. Thank the Lord we have an example in Scripture where they kind of got it right. 1 Corinthians 3 is a passage I've been referencing recently. I've been talking about the difference between Paul and Apollos and how each one had a part to play, right? One planted, one Um, watered, but God gave the growth. The context of Paul writing those words, he's writing to the church in Corinth. Why? Because there was tribalism taking place. Listen to Paul's words as he writes to the Corinthian church. He says, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. As the Lord has assigned to each his task, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants or the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants, the one who waters, have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. That collaborative language that Paul uses to talk about the place of Apollos and himself. You are God's field and God's building. 
This is the kind of mindset that is helpful for us to, to be reminded of we are to have. In the church, we need to have a kingdom mindset. We need to understand our education and pedigree does not qualify us to be above correction. We need to understand that though it's important to be right, how we are right is just as important. Though it's important to be right, how we are right is just as important. An understanding also that if we're on the same team, we cannot be tribalistic or divisive. There is one body. The sins that we must battle in order to have this mindset are the sins of pride, sins of selfishness, sins of insecurity, sins of jealousy and conceit, sins of contempt. Another way to describe a kingdom mindset would be to have a Christ mindset, to put on the mindset of Christ. Paul writes to the Philippian church in Philippians chapter 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. It's a famous passage that talks about the kingdom mindset Christ had. The reason we see a kingdom mindset in Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila and the believers in Ephesus is because they came to understand at some level the mindset that Christ had for them. It's a gospel mindset, one that understands the gracious way that Jesus served on behalf of everyone who believes in him. We can be teachable only if we understand how grace has taught us. Right? The kingdom principles are not the way the world thinks. Grace teaches us that. We can be gracious in correction when we know the levels of grace that God gives us as he corrects and changes us. And we can only be collaborative when we understand we're on the same team because we all have placed our faith in the same blood. Christ went to the cross to make one body, one church. It's not a competition. We need to have a kingdom mindset. And it is essential that we have that mindset if we are to live out our calling as the essential church. Would you pray with me? Father, we're so grateful once again to be spending time in the book of Acts. And we're thankful for the ways in which we can take time to focus on little passages, passages that have brief exchanges and yet profound wisdom. Lord, you are so aware of the ways in which your church is still perfecting itself. 2,000 years since the time of Christ, and we still have besetting sins. Lord, you know the ways in which we can become selfish or competitive or prideful in ministry. 
the ways in which our insecurities and um, our contempt can create ingracious attitudes, spiritual uh, habits that are not um, gracious as we correct people, responses that are not guided by the gospel. And so, Lord, as one local church, part of this larger body, we pray that you would sanctify us and renew our minds through the power of your word. Father, we're so grateful for the ways that you provide for us to grow. And Holy Spirit, we look forward to seeing you work this truth deep into our hearts. May it be written on our hearts so that we might not sin against you. Father, I also want to, at this time, thank you so much for the provision that you have given this church. We have been through such an interesting time as a country and as a people. It has been such a blessing that you have provided for every need that has arisen through the generosity and the gifts and offerings and tithes of your people. Father, I pray that you would bless those who have given faithfully. I want you, Lord, and and ask you that you would create and cultivate joy in their hearts, that they would know that many have rejoiced at their generosity, that through the ministries of the church, Father, there's opportunities for praising and rejoicing. Lord, we're so grateful. We pray that 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 uh, grace and that abundance of blessing would overflow back to the givers, that they would understand the ways in which their partnership in the gospel brings you much glory. Lord, help our church to be faithful with what we've been given. We're so thankful to be able to participate in ministry. and We are in need of your guidance all the time, Lord. Help us to be wise stewards of all the gifts that you've given us, not only financial, but those of abilities and talents and the many gifts that you have equipped this body with. Father, we're thinking of the body this morning, and we also want to lift up prayers for those who are in need of healing, those who are in need of encouragement, those who find themselves in the midst of darkness and feel isolated, who cannot join us in person for worship and do not feel safe having fellowship with their church family or even their biological families, Lord. Father, we pray that your grace would enter into each of those situations and would overflow. We pray, Father, that your spirit and your word would minister to the hearts and bring encouragement in the midst of discouragement, hope in the midst of despair, peace in the midst of hardship. Lord, we ask these things boldly in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask that we uh, stand for our closing song. Feel free to hum along and reflect on the lyrics. A mighty fortress, uh, or Ein feste Burg ist unser Gott in the German, is one of the Uh, certainly most popular and also best-loved hymns of the Protestant church. It's also one of the oldest. Um, It was written a long, long time ago by Martin Luther, uh, 
who we heard about and even saw up on the screen earlier in the service. Um, both its tune and its text. Martin Luther was a prolific writer about many things, including music. And about music, he recognized that uh, it has a power, like few other things, to stir the emotions, um, to stir one to sadness, to heartbreak, to joy, to excitement or zeal. And uh, like, uh, unlike some other reformers, he embraced this about music. He saw it as a, a great and also biblical, which was important, tool to use uh, uh, for worshiping the Lord. Um, it was uh, 200 years later that uh, J.S. Bach uh, repurposed the tune and turned it into the one that we know today that we often sing. Um, this hymn has uh, continued through the Protestant church for uh, 500 years now. Um, uh, and um, we're going to present one, a new arrangement to you today. This is by Matt Boswell. He's a contemporary Christian songwriter. And uh, he changes it uh, in a few little places, the same melody, but he switches up the rhythm here and there to uh, help it fit better our, our, our English text. Um, and I ask you to participate uh, however you can by, by humming, um, certainly by dwelling on the words, um, by making them the prayer of your heart. Fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are
Thank you so much, worship team, for introducing a new version of a wonderful, classic, traditional hymn. Um, I have a couple of announcements before we proceed to the benediction. Today is All Saints Day. In some Protestant churches, they remember those dear church members, church family who have passed um, over the last year. And um, you may have noticed, we published in Atonement Life a couple times, uh, that there will be a memorial service that is offered this Thursday. We've had a few church family who we've lost during this time, and we've not been able to gather and to celebrate their life and to worship the Lord and thank them, thank Him for uh, the blessing of having them a part of our church family. And so a memorial service is planned for this Thursday. Um, it is planned for honoring and celebrating the lives of Jale, Astrid, Marie, and Frank. And so we want to encourage you, if you feel comfortable coming in person, that registration should be live later today. So feel free to register RSVP and come, um, or it will also be online, and you can participate at home. I know some of us have some busy schedules, and we might have a conflict uh, with coming here in person with commutes and things like that. Details uh, are in Atonement Life, and be watching your email for opportunity to RSVP. Also, I wanted to remind us all that tomorrow night, uh, be sure to join us at 7 p.m. for our prayer, uh, season of prayer kickoff event. So it's going to be a virtual event, no in-person stuff. Just sign on uh, online through Facebook or on the uh, webpage. And this event's going to kick off a nine-week season of prayer for our church. Hopefully you've downloaded or printed out our prayer guide or got a chance to, to take a look at it. That will kind of guide us over the next nine weeks. Our prayer is that every household of Church of the Atonement will commit to praying for gospel renewal and revitalization. And we have several prompts of how to be praying for that in this season. Um, so be sure to tune in tomorrow night. We'll try to give some more details of how to use that prayer guide, um, as well as uh, be guiding us through uh, the beginning of our season of prayer. It's just going to be a short service, 45 minutes. shouldn't be much longer than that. Um, but we think it's important for us to gather together. So try to find a way to tune in. Details are also in Atonement Life. And sadly, <laughs> uh, we just checked the weather. It's still raining. So I know some of you are, are about to burst after that last hymn. You want to sing a lot. Um, you're going to have to do it in your car. Fog up the windows. Steam it up. Find K-Love. Put your favorite worship music on. Uh, maybe download that song to your phone before you leave the, the church Wi-Fi, the church building. Don't do it while you're driving. That's not safe. Um, but we encourage you to continue this day. This is the Lord's day in worship, not just the Lord's service in worship. So may our day be filled with worship. And as we go, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of this Holy Spirit equip us to be the essential church, to be witnesses for his name and for his glory until we meet again. Amen.